All right. Well, we're going to continue our series on Advent and uh, this morning. And uh, first of all, if you need a Bible, if you want to raise your hand, we have Bibles available. Just stick your hand there. They'll bring one right to your seat. And because uh, we're going to be in John this morning. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles to the book of John chapter one, that would be wonderful. This is the second message in our series on Advent. And really, Advent is preparing our hearts for the coming Messiah afresh. Every year we get to do that this time of year, looking at Christmas. Uh, there's a lot of things that go into Christmas season, and a lot have to do with the Lord, and a lot have to, does not have to do with the Lord. And so as we contemplate um, our Savior coming to earth in the form of a babe, we're becoming flesh. Uh, this is our opportunity to refresh our hearts and how we fit into that. Who God is, what he's done, how it's a miracle that any of us are here, let alone we have a Savior that was sent on our behalf. Uh, that's what we're looking at this morning is week number two. Last week, Pastor Brian went through hope. This week, we're going through love. And uh, so I'm really excited about this morning. We're going to be in a few different cha- uh, passages in uh, the book of John. And uh, those of you who want to see, the next slide has the QR code. If you want the Advent uh, study guide that Pastor Brian made, then you can just scan that QR code. It'll take you right there. It has copies of the video or links to them and uh, the, all the scriptures we're going over and focusing on. And in particular, John 3.16 and how we're unpackaging that together. So if you want to download that, just scan that QR code. And you'll have all the tools that we're going to be looking at as well as the passages. So uh, let's just talk about what Advent is just as a refresher. I know he covered this last week. We'll put up that slide. What is Advent? So uh, the word Advent is derived from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming. So there's something coming. There's something coming that's going to impact our lives. There's something that we want to get in the flow of again and say the coming is going to affect me. It's going to affect, in fact, the whole world. What is that coming? The season of Advent lasts four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Though the season has its roots more in the traditions which early Christians developed than in mandates given in Scripture. You're not going to find it in Scripture. You're going to find the story, obviously, but not the application of this. The idea behind it was to form our identity as followers of Jesus. Using the rhythm of this yearly season, a.k.a. holy days or holidays, Christians would look back upon Christ's first coming in celebration. Are you celebrating the season? Is this good news to you? This is our opportunity to refresh the miracle that is our Savior come to earth, while simultaneously looking forward in eager anticipation of him coming again. I think that's a part where we tend to leave out. It's not only looking back at the Savior being born, coming to the earth, and ultimately giving his life as a ransom for many, but it's also looking ahead. The reality that if all these scriptures and prophecies are fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah in the first coming, look at how many scriptures have yet to be awaited to be fulfilled in the second. There's a Redeemer who's coming back. There's a a confidence that can be had that the second coming is just as sure as that babe lying in a manger. So it's our opportunity to refresh ourselves. Where are we in that story? What are we expecting? What are we most hopeful about? How does the Savior coming back impact us? Is it fear that it provokes? Is it joy? Is it somewhere a mixture of uncertainty? And yet, I think I should be excited about this, but I'm not really sure what that means. And does that mean I get judged and on the spot and all my secrets come out? You know, all those host of things that go through our mind of the second coming. But I will tell you this, the first coming wasn't fully understood right, by those he came to. Obviously, we're going to look at a passage today about that. 
uh, the full understanding I trust that the Lord will give us, not only from his word, which is our primary source of information about the second coming, about the judgment of Christ, about the, him being setting all things right, but there will be a peace there and a joy like no other when he does. And you, if you put your faith in the Lord, you don't have to have it all figured out. I guess that's my encouragement. Just as they, can you imagine being a shepherd, Jesus coming, and in that, in that moment seeing a host of heavenly hosts proclaiming glory of God in the highest, you know, in the highest, peace to his people on earth. Uh, they wouldn't have the slightest idea the full impact of those words, would they? But God's faithful to bring us along in that story and explain what we need to know. So looking forward in eager anticipation of him coming again, when he returns for his people, we likewise now center our identity again in the gospel, which is all about Jesus, the greatest gift of all. So there's our advent, what it means and what we're looking at. Now, uh, in particular, this Christmas season for us, my family, my wife, Wendy, who's here, uh, we have had a special Advent season because it's kind of a, as I like to term, a double Advent for us. Because our coming is in the form of our first grandbaby. Yeah. So go ahead and. Uh huh. That's Mason Lee. And uh, she's the newest member of the Ray clan. Uh, my son Mitchell married a wonderful woman, Whitney, and they just had their firstborn two weeks ago. So our first grandbaby was, it's, I put gift received on 11-2021. She is a true gift. We were there in Arizona to welcome her. Uh, Wendy got to be in the hospital at her four-hour-old state, and I got to see her the next day, which was a huge blessing. And we were, we still are. Every time we're, we're driving somewhere, and actually I believe that they're watching right now, so I'm really happy about that. Mason is already in her outfit watching Pops. That's what I'm called as Pops this morning. Hi there, Mason. Um, but uh, I don't even know what I was talking about. Okay, I got a little distracted. Advent, that's right, Advent, Advent, the coming, two comings. Uh, but Wendy and I will just be driving. We were driving here, and just somebody says Mason, and my heart leaps. My heart just gets full of joy. And there's other grandparents here in our midst that I've talked to, and they're like, there's no other feeling like it. Way beyond having your own children. No, your parents, you know, there's joy in your kids. My son, Mitch, said, Dad, we've never seen you guys so happy. I'm like, it's not because you didn't make us happy. It's just, yeah, we're happy. We're, our, our hearts are full. And, and we're so eager to meet this little one. And it, and it leads me right into the Christmas season with the same, like, wow, Lord, I want to be just as excited about your coming. First and second, that, that just the mere thought of Jesus would bring up that same enthusiasm in my heart, that same level of joy. Some of us are going through some tough stuff. I was just talking to a brother who lost a loved one yesterday, this morning. And, you know, that those things are part of life. We all know that. But there's something deep when you have joy that's filled with hope that we looked at last week that's different when you have the Lord in your life. Can anybody attest to that being true? I know we've lost many a people in our family and over the years, and I've gone through great deals of heartache. And I was telling my wife as well and leading up to this, that usually, because I'm an itinerant preacher, I come up every once in a while to talk about the Word of God, because Pastor Brian does a bulk of the teaching, and rightfully so. But I, I would say, when, when in the past, I've looked at times where I've come up to teach, it's been on the heels. The timing is such that because I don't do it every week, I always see a, sem- a semblance of, of timing involved. And a lot of the past has been heartache for me. Like, I've come up here, 
and like, okay, Lord, we're going to do this, but it's going to be your strength because I can't make it unless you give me the strength to do it because of what was going on in my life. And here has been the total opposite emotion of just the thought of Mason. Did you put up that other slide, Jake? I got two more for you. That's my boy. That's Mitch. We got two uncles. We got Daniel, Davis, and her side of the family. We're all, it's the first for both sides. So that's the cuteness. That's the advent that I've been focused on. But it's led me, and I'm thankful for this, to the joy of just knowing Jesus and the fact that he came, not only for me, but for my precious granddaughter, Mason. Ah, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Okay, let's get back into the scripture. John 3.16 is our theme verse. For the week, you don't have to turn there unless you want, but it's well known. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved, that word agape, the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Week number two is we're reflecting on the God who loves this broken world so much that it moved into action, reflecting on Jesus, the Messiah sent to rescue us. So we're going to watch, as we did last week, a Bible project video on love. Ahava is the word they're focusing on, so we can play that now, and we'll watch it, and then I'll come back up. What does he mean exactly by the word love? It's an unclear word in English because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures where the word for love is ahava. However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day was a cousin language of Hebrew, that is, Aramaic, in which the word for love is rachmah. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word agape. But here's what's fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important, to love your neighbor as yourself. So which is the most important, loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people and vice versa, they're inseparable. And so this makes it clear that for Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. 
Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand. Or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them, expecting nothing in return. For Jesus, this kind of enemy-embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards poor and hurting people who couldn't benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And when Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Or in the words of the Apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And for John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world, which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. And that's the New Testament meaning of agape love. Okay, wonderful. So let's look at John 1 together. As we had such a great background given to us by the Bible Project video. And uh, we're going to read the first 18 verses. It says, and this is out of the New Living Translation. Love the way they, they uh, translate this passage in particular. It brings a lot of clarity. Well, listen up. If you, you can follow along with the screen as well. But um, it says, in the beginning, the word already existed. Now, let me just pause there and just say right away, every reader that John had in his, you know, that this letter went out to would know that in the beginning was right away a sign pointing back to the very first Bible book, and that is Genesis, in the beginning, God created. And here, the Apostle John is setting up a big backdrop for the love of God, and he starts out with those words, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. So we have that the word was already there. It already existed. It was present with God, actually was God. He was with God, and the word was God. So in Genesis, where it makes those statements, in the beginning God created, we already are amazed by the fact that Whoever God is, or whoever John's introducing right here is bigger than anyone could even imagine. 
And he's setting up the whole story of the, of the Savior with these words. In the beginning, Jesus is what? God. The Word gave life to everything that was created, verse 4, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Verse 6, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human or flesh and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, This is the one I was talking about when I said someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am. For he existed long before me. From his abundance we have all received one gracious blessing after another, like Mason. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. So right away, I would say, and we're looking at, and we're looking at love, agape or ahava. The way that I see John painting this picture of Jesus, the Messiah, the one that's to come. He's about to go right into the description of Jesus being described by John as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That love that God has demonstrated starts here, that you have God himself becoming flesh. That's what, that's what Christmas is. It's a miracle of Christmas. God incarnate. God with us taking a, a place of being a man, which is already humbling himself. There's a few things I want to point out in this passage, though, that I want to point out, specifically deal with the love, especially in this season. I hope that you... You swell up with appreciation afresh as we all set our sights on preparing our hearts and giving him room. And that is a couple of these things. Was that for one, yeah, it was the word was with God. The word was God. So Jesus incarnate, the very miracle of that. But then also going on, look at verse 10. He came into the very world he created. So the creator comes into the very world of creation But the world, that is everyone, not just plants and trees and animals. We're talking about people. The world didn't recognize him. They had every ability to or every sense of of, he could reasonably, I should say, expect his creation as a creator to receive him, to, to actually embrace him. But he received none of that. The world didn't recognize him. There was just another baby or another another person claiming to be with God. Or God, You know, there was no recognition. There was no embracing happening on the broader sense. But here's what kills me. When you have a baby come in your family, your family, it's a whole different level when you reject that baby. 
correct? The, the, the Israelites themselves were prepared generation by generation, going back to Abraham, going back farther than that even, just the Moses giving the law and preparing the people with all this information of, and the prophets therein and, and the psalmists and the poets and all these people coming to give a united message that, hey, don't worry. God will send our Savior, our Redeemer. And he came into his own kin, his own family, and they rejected him. How tragic is that? For someone to be rejected on the broader sense, yeah, they don't know me. But when you, we're talking about family rejection of the Messiah, that's a whole different level, at least to me. Especially in light of how, even yesterday morning, I was having breakfast with a, a buddy of mine, and, and, and we were talking about, of course, we had to talk about my granddaughter, right? So I'm talking about her, and, and, and he made the statement unsolicited by me. He says, he says uh, that's her identity when we were talking about her coming into our family. That's her identity now. It was given unto her. We are the ones who get to educate her about it. And here's God saying, you have an identity. As a world person, as somebody in the broader community, you are my creation. You're no less a person of me than, than the Israelites. But within the Israelite family, you have an identity that you're God's chosen people, and you're ready to prepare and be a light to the nation so they're prepared to receive the gift, which is Messiah for all people. Who all, whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. This was not done or followed, and so even the ones that were supposed to be in the job of giving identity to others, that you are a child of God by kin, because not a, a plan of man, as John 1 says, but of the will of God, it, it wasn't happening so that he actually got rejected by his own people. Can you feel a little bit more of the weight of that? That, that John's setting the stage for rejection, not embracing. Hopefully that's not the same with us. So God's in this plan. He's doing these things. And it's all because he's motivated, as we described, by love. Look at verse 16 again. From his abundance we have all received one gracious blessing after another. The law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God but the unique one. He himself is God, is near the Father's heart, and he has revealed God to us. I want to ask you in this Christmas season to take a moment, take a walk, take some time, and just dwell on the fact that this God did all of this, John 1 through 18, for yes, the whole world, but just for a second, just for a moment, just for an elongated time. Just start dwelling and make it personal. Whether you're here in our midst or watching online, just take a moment to get away and just say, God, you did this for me. And initially, I didn't have my arms open, if we're honest. There was some sort of rejection on our part as demonstrated by our choosing our own will. See, all of us have gone astray. All of us have turned our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we all have a departure from the truth, a departure from the God who loves us so that he would send his own son. And yet, he's saying, I want you to be my son, my daughter. And I want you to just get away a little time in this Christmas season and make it personal and say, Lord, you did that for me. You came for me. You wanted to rescue me. Sometimes that's the hardest thing to actually personalize. Because automatically, if you're anything like me, I feel my unworthiness, my state of like, but Lord. <laughs> and we're going to see in this next passage. So here's the big God becoming flesh, humbling himself in the form of man, who is the only one who could live a sinful life, 
so that ultimately he could serve as our substitute, our ransom, our Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Ultimately proving that as he rose from the dead. But that's the big picture. I want us to go to John 13 right now. So turn to John 13, and Jesus is going to give us, as they announced in the video, as they described in the video, this passage, which is an amazing practical lesson that Jesus gives his disciples on love that comes from the Father that we are likewise to have for each other. And I just want to read this as well. You can follow along as well with the slides. John chapter 13, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. That's a huge statement in the context of this story. Just mark that in your heart. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Now don't picture a bunch of chairs around a table. They reclined when they were at a table, lower profile table, and, and so everyone had access to the feet as far as slaves would go and wash. They were all accessible. The feet were there beside them, not underneath them. So he, he, he rises up, he disrobes his robe, and he starts washing them. Verse 6, when Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You guys, what does he mean when he asks that question? What is he really saying? This, this should not happen. Not only is it like questioning, why are you washing my feet? But it's like, nah, as he goes on to say, right? He's like, this should not happen. He says, uh, are you going to wash my feet? Verse 7, Jesus replies, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested. You will never, ever wash my feet. And my Bible has exclamation point added for purpose, right? This was emphatic. This was a declaration on Peter's behalf saying, you will not do this. Now, why does he say that, you guys? It's a little confusing on the surface until you realize that in that culture, it's very important to know that rabbis at the time taught that no one would do the feet washing except for Gentile slaves. So if you were a Jew, this was not even work that you should be doing. And why was that? Well, we know that feet and if you're in a sandals, get sweaty, they get dirty, they get injured. There's just a whole lot about washing feet that's, that's below the average person to do that for other people in this slave duty. So they reserve, they said, Jews shall not do that, it'll be Gentiles only. So what some commentator, commentators like to point out, and I find that extremely enlightening with this. Because Jesus is, is basically doing the form of work and, and doing this task that's, that, that he shouldn't be doing. He, and, and they say, Lord and Master, that doesn't apply to somebody who's doing this duty for them. Taking, taking my own feet. I don't even like my own feet. You guys like your own feet? I don't really like them. I like, I'm glad they're farthest away from my head. <laughs> um, but here's something about feet, too. There's not that many differences foot to foot, right? 
I don't look at somebody's feet and go, whoa, those are the most beautiful feet I've ever seen in my life. You know, maybe. Maybe people have, maybe you have beautiful feet. I'm sorry if I'm offending you, if you really, really value your feet. But the point is, is that Jesus is, is washing them off. And, and feet are dirty, and they're smelly, and, they're, and, they're, and they may have sores or bunions. It's, it's funny, but it's true. Leave that to the, to the Gentile slaves. That's their duty. The people that should be doing the work. And here's Jesus keeping them on their toes. And Jesus replies, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. And Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. In other words, wash away. That was a proper response, wasn't it? Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for their feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. And that is what meant, is meant when he said, not all of you are clean. And after washing their feet, he put it on his robe again. And he sat down and he asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord. And that word for Lord is master. Okay, Kyrios, it's, it's the most elevated supreme. He is the master, teacher and Lord. And you are right, because that is what I am. And since I, your Lord and your master, your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I've done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. And now you know these things. God will bless you for doing them. So you guys looking at this picture of him, this is right before he's going to go to the cross. So this Jesus' real-life practical lesson that, that he gives to us as, as how, our, how our posture should be. But for one, we take on that. We should do likewise, right? We should never have the attitude that we're above anyone. We take the form of a slave that gets lower and esteems other people up. And if our Lord and Master, the God who created everything, who took on flesh as a gift to us, that he might ultimately die on a cross in our place, when he's getting down and dirty, if you will, and, and doing this, this slave work, he's providing that example that, that, that that's how willing the Father, how willing the Father God is to love us, to love you and love me, to love you. He wants to wash your feet. He wants you... He wants you to be his own. He wants you to know that the Savior would stoop down at that level and lift you up and clean you off and restore purity and give you a new life and give you a hope beyond your suffering and allow you to be elevated when you feel downtrodden and allow you to know that the God who created you has that much care and love for you as a person, as a human being. Someone who deserves to be cast off because you rejected him at one point. Someone who knows everything you've ever done. And the reason why you could say that confidently is because that passage, Judas had already been influenced by the enemy to the degree where he knew he was going to betray him. And yet, whose feet gets washed along with all the rest? Judas. And we tend to focus on Judas, but I'll give you one last example. Peter is the one who also gets, no, you're not going to wash my feet. Maybe Peter knew that there's a flaw in me that ultimately is going to lead me to denying my Savior to a little slave girl. Aren't you a follower of Jesus? I don't know. You got me mixed up with somebody else. Can you imagine having to face the Lord after doing something like that? 
I mean, that Judas, yeah, horrible. But Peter, just as guilty, and yet they're both getting their feet washed, as well as other disciples that had deserted him at the time of cross, other than maybe John. Do you get where I'm going? The love of God, the ahava, the agape love of God, is so compelling that we're able to say, okay, Lord, I want to do this. I want to wash other people's feet. And I'll tell you, there's a practical sense of serving, and then there's things called, like, forgiveness. That's hard. It's, in, in one way, washing feet is, like, easy for someone like me. It's like, yeah, just I'll, I'll wash anybody's feet. But when it comes to, like, forgiving somebody else, like, washing them that way or restoring purity upon them in that way, as far as my account being owed and releasing that, that's hard. But what did God do for us? What did the Savior, what did Emmanuel do for us? So I want us to dwell on that in week number two of Advent. I, wanna, I want us to in, in just enjoy the fact that we can be confident that God loves us enough to become flesh, to become the Savior on our behalf, to become the one who washes our feet. I want us to, to rise up into that and be refreshed this Christmas. I hope you are encouraged with the fact that God loves us the way that he does. So I'm going to have the worship guys come up and Jill, and uh, we're going to have some communion to, to close up. And uh, spend a couple minutes, you guys. Don't let this moment get past. And just thank him and, and get in that moment of saying, you've done this for me. You've done this for me. You've washed my feet. You've gone to the cross. You've allowed me for, to be uh, treated with mercy instead of justice that I deserve. And I, and I want to give my life to you. That's for you. We have communion available. And we're going to go in a time of communion uh, right now. So... When you guys, let's stand together. And as you feel like the timing is right for you to go and get the elements, uh, one nice thing is for those of you who wanted uh, gluten-free communion elements, we do have that. Again, we, we got some in finally. They're on that table near the sound booth. So as we start uh, worshiping in song again, go ahead and, and, and grab your, the elements should you choose to partake of communion. And then uh, we'll partake at the end together, okay? And I'll lead us in that. And I just want to extend an invitation. You know, the communion is a table, and it's available to anyone who would come to the Savior and say, Savior, I need washing. I need cleansing. I need your touch. I need your gift of coming. I need your gift of sacrifice. You are the Lamb of God, and I recognize that. And, and Lord, I want to come to you. If, you. if you haven't done that and gotten to that place in your life where you receive the Lord's mercy then, then the, technically the table is not, it's not open. It's only open for those as those who would come and say, this is what God has done for me. So the nice thing is, yeah, that, that invitation is not there, but the moment your posture becomes such that you're like, Lord, I want you. I receive what you've done for me. To many who has received him, he gave the right to become children of God, as we just read. That table now becomes open to you and anyone. So if you're at home, uh, celebrating. If you have communion elements, you can gather. Let's focus on the sacrifice that Jesus did for us. It's a, it's, a, it's a symbol that says this is what he did. He broke his body for us. He shed his blood for us. So let's worship. Grab the elements. We'll all partake at the end.